Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is January the 25th, a Tuesday. Uh, I'm talking to you, uh, to 2022. I'm talking to you from my home in San Francisco on the west coast of the United States. Tuesday is always a big day on this show because new books are released on a Tuesday and, and we're having quite a, a law book kind of day. Uh, earlier this morning, uh, I spoke with the Harvard Law School professor, uh, Randall Kennedy. His old new book, Nigger, it came out in 20, uh, it came out in 2002. He has a um, it's been uh, reissued with a with a new introduction by Randall, the strange career of a, a troubled uh, word. Uh, Randall teaches at Harvard Law School, the citadel of law, I guess, in the United States, where presidents and other distinguished people are made. Um, and to complement Randall's new book or new old book, uh, the other new book, and this is a genuinely new book, um, that we are talking about today is one that just came out it's called American Injustice, Inside Stories from the Underbelly of the Criminal Justice System. It's written by David S. Rudolph, who is talking to us from uh, Toronto in California. Some of you will be familiar uh, with uh, David Rudolph. Um, he was the lawyer involved in the staircase. Um, uh, which some of you will have watched online, uh, uh, a true case about a man called Michael Ivor Peterson, uh, who was convicting of murdering his second wife and who turned out to be innocent. So I guess this new book uh, by David, American Injustice, Inside Stories from the Underbelly of the Criminal Justice System, uh, reflects his own uh, many years of experience um, defending uh, supposed criminals within the system against, I think, what he perceives to be a corrupt system, particularly a, a, a corrupt uh, police-based system. Uh, David, welcome, um, author of American Injustice. Uh, did I get that right? Um, is your book, uh, American Injustice, uh, a reflection of the many years you have spent uh, protecting people from the legal state from the injustice of the American state. You talk about the thousands of innocent people who have been convicted in your book. Well, uh, I, th I think you're partially right, Andrew, and thank you for having me on. Uh, it certainly is a reflection of all the work I have done over the years, but I'm not sure I would call it a corrupt system. I think there are times when the system is corrupt, uh, but I think uh, the point of the book is not so much that the system is corrupt, uh, but rather uh, that uh, it's run by human beings who make mistakes uh, and uh, who, uh, who suffer from the kinds of, of problems that we all suffer from, such as confirmation bias. Uh, and that kind of problem uh, that we all have can really create horrendous problems in the criminal justice system. Uh, your book comes, the beginning of the book, you have a quote from um, the Baron de Montesquieu, of course, the author of his, The Spirit of the Laws, one of the great 
uh, intellectual products, books of the uh, 18th century. Uh, you quote the, the Montesquieu, but constant experience shows us that every man invested with power is apt to abuse it and to carry his authority as far as it will go. As I said, uh, uh, a book um, written in 1748 by Montesquieu. It was also a book that radically influenced, um, radically influenced uh, to Tocqueville in his writing of Democracy in America. I've been listening and reading Democracy in America recently, um, David, and it struck me that what Tocqueville noted in the 19th century about America was that the criminal justice system in this country is radically different from the one in Europe in that it was fair and it was run in a relatively uncorrupt way. Do you think the criminal justice system has changed profoundly uh, since, um, since Tocqueville wrote Democracy in America? Now people tend to compare the European criminal justice system as being somehow less corrupt, fairer than the American one? Well, no, I, I think what's happened is that society has changed, uh, obviously, greatly in the intervening years. Uh, and and with it, uh, the, the ways in which the criminal justice system was designed to operate perhaps no longer operate quite as, as well as they did 200 years ago. So, for example, uh, it's a very different system uh, when uh, sort of everybody knows one another in the community in which somebody is being tried, uh, and uh, everybody respects the notion uh, that you're innocent until you're proven guilty. Uh, and you don't have a lot of media attention necessarily uh, before a trial. Uh, and, uh, you know, the jurors are, tend to be people who really are your peers. Uh, you know, none of that is true anymore. And, and now uh, the, the system is, is operating in a vastly different atmosphere. Uh, and I think it, it tends to expose the limitations of what was designed for a very different society 250 years ago. The police don't come out of your book looking great, although there are a lot of books written these days in which the American police force doesn't come out looking that good. Um, are they the core of the problem, David, or is it, uh, as you suggested at the beginning, a little bit more complicated than that? No, no, I think it is more complicated. I, I, you know, I think uh, I don't think the book should be read as an indictment of the police as a group or as an institution. You know, obviously the police are an essential part of, of any society uh, if they're operating properly. Um, no, I, I think the problem, and it's not even a problem of, of rotten apples, if you will, and, and you know we've heard that from some people. I don't think that's the issue. I think the issue is that the police uh, tend to come to snap judgments about particular situations, and, and that's that's because they're very experienced in, in various ways, and particularly detectives have dealt with hundreds, if not thousands, of cases. And so they happen on a, a crime scene, uh, and uh, they form an opinion pretty quickly, usually, about what happened. Uh, and then once that happens, then the, the process known as confirmation bias uh, begins to, to skew the whole process because... Once you have a theory about what happened, 
then confirmation bias causes us to ignore the facts that are inconsistent with our theory and to focus on the facts that are consistent with our theory. And that then becomes a self-fulfilling uh, prophecy, uh, and it leads to the kinds of wrongful convictions that we have seen exposed over the past 20 or 30 years. There's something heartbreaking about your story, American Injustice, inside stories from the underbelly of the criminal justice system, as heartbreaking, I guess, in some ways as the, the staircase. You talk uh, in your book about um, abuses of power have resulted in the wrongful prosecutions of thousands of innocent people. I'm quoting you here. Countless innocent people have likewise been imprisoned and many have been sent to death row. Tragically, some of those sentenced to death were executed for crimes they likely did not commit. Racial minorities have disproportionately been the target and victims of police and prosecutor misconduct, particularly in the American South, where an enduring legacy of racial prejudice has long plagued the criminal justice system. It's pretty hard hitting, David, and you sp you're in Toronto at the moment, but you spend uh, part of your life in uh, um, Charlotte, North Carolina. Um, the system sounds, at least in part, rotten. When you compare it, say, with European systems, the very European systems that Tocqueville was critiquing in the 19th century, you don't have these kind of abuses of power, do you? Or at least well, in a structural sense. I mean, obviously, well, every system is vulnerable to uh, mistrials and misunderstandings of the law. Well, no, I, I think you do have these problems uh, in, in many, many uh, European countries. Uh, you know, in, in Great Britain, for example, uh, there have been countless cases of wrongful prosecutions, oftentimes, uh, you know, as a result of the Irish situation uh, and, and, you know, the, the troubles the Irish situation. Well, the troubles in Ireland uh, and, and the Irish Republican Army and the provisionals. Uh, and uh, there have been a number of cases in which have been wrongfully convicted in that context. Uh, so it, it's not at all a, a, an indictment of the American system. It, it's really, it's a question of the system is run by people. Uh, and uh, yes, I think there are real problems with uh, inherent racism. Uh, I think there are real problems with how the system deals with people who are underprivileged, uh, that they are not given the kinds of resources that they really need to protect themselves and defend themselves. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I, don't, I, I don't hold out the French system, for example, uh, as a, a paradigm that, that we ought to be, uh, you know, aiming for, because, you know, they have an inquisitorial system that I think doesn't really protect. Is there a model... Um... David, of a system that you think works better than others? I take your point that none is perfect. Well, um, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure I'm qualified to talk about every system. What about uh, the Canadian system? You, I well, know you have fled to Canada, perhaps in some ways as a, re a response to what's happening in America. Yeah, well, I think... What's interesting about the Canadian system is that there seems to be much more of, of an emphasis on uh, fair results uh, than there 
is in the United States. So, you know, and, and their system has many, many uh, similarities uh, to both the United States and Great Britain. Uh, but what seems to me to set it apart is that there's not quite the same slavish uh, devotion to procedural process, uh, due process. And they seem to, to care more or at least as much about substantive due process. And what I'm talking about there is they really care about getting the result right. It's not just getting the process right or the procedures right. They seem to care much more than we do about getting the result right. And, and the other thing that is interesting about the Canadian system is when something goes wrong in the criminal justice system here, they often have what's called a coroner's inquest, uh, which is an examination of what happened, why it went wrong, and how can it be fixed, or how can it be, um, how can the risk be minimized? Uh, and and that's that's a, something that I think we can really learn from in the United States, uh, because it's not fault-based, it's not directed at trying to figure out uh, who, who uh, uh, violated some uh, right or law. It's designed to figure out how can we make the system better? And we don't do that in the United States. We, we, we find somebody who's been wrongfully convicted and perhaps sentenced to decades in prison. They get out and we, we, uh, we sort of acknowledge or, or announce uh, that you see the system worked. The person has gotten out. Well, no, the system has, the system has failed. And what we really need to be doing is understanding and examining why did the system fail and what can we do to make it better? And that's not happening. Uh, you dedicate the book um, to, and I'm quoting you again, to all who have lost their lives, their freedom or their hope because of the abuse of power. Um, and you talk about um, uh, some of the cases um, in the book. I, I'm quoting you again. Many of the cases are from North Carolina, where I've practiced law since 1978. You have a couple of photos in the book um, of um, a man called Ray Finch. Um, perhaps you might briefly talk about the Ray Finch example, just to, to give a real uh, human example of, of, of criminal, of, of, of the injustice of the criminal so-called justice system. Yeah, and, and, you know, it's important to me that, that this is not at all a book about, you know, uh, I'm a great lawyer. It's a book about how the abuses of power, and, you know, there's a difference between an abuse of power and a corruption of power, in my view. Uh, an abuse of power is simply when somebody who has, in, is in a position of authority uses that position to accomplish something in a way that violates other people's rights. Uh, and that's what I mean by an abuse of power. And so in Ray's case, uh, uh, Ray was a young man in a rural county in North Carolina, uh, and he was accused of a murder. And what's really tragic about Ray's case is that it's absolutely clear that, and this is not a common experience, but Ray was actually set up. Uh, he was framed for a murder that he did not commit. And the reason he was framed was because the sheriff in that county was corrupt, 
the actual perpetrator knew that the sheriff was corrupt, had evidence uh, that the sheriff was corrupt. And so if he had been arrested by the sheriff, he was in a position to blow the whistle, so to speak, on the sheriff. And so there was a concerted effort to frame Ray Finch for a particular murder. Ray ended up spending 42 years in prison. And for, for people just listening, we have an image of um, uh, Ray, uh, I, I think, in, a, in an ID line. Uh, yes. And, and if, yeah. If you put that, keep that image up because the, the, the victim in a particular uh, situation identified one of the perpetrators as wearing a three-quarter length black coat. And Ray Finch was put into that lineup with a three-quarter length black coat, and he was the only person in that lineup with a three-quarter uh, three length black coat. So the lineup was designed to have the witness pick him out based not on anything other than the coat that he was dressed in when he was put into the lineup. That's the kind of abuse of power that I'm talking about because it was it was inevitable that that witness would pick out Ray Finch. Yeah, as you say, he was uh, set up in um, parts two and three of your book focus on uh, race. Uh, part two is entitled Race and the Abuse of Power in the Criminal Justice System. Part three is Black, White and the Gray in the Criminal Justice System. Is the problem that most of the police are white? Is that why race is so corrosive in the American justice system? No, I, I think it's true that probably the majority of police officers are white and the majority of people who they come into contact with on a daily basis are people of color. Uh, but no, I, I think what I was getting at with black, white, and gray was, was not so much the color of people's skin, but rather the fact that things are not always as they seem to be. Uh, and so there's a lot of gray uh, in the criminal justice system that some people want to transform into black and white. Uh, and, and there's more you nuance. Have too, you have a section on race and you have uh, a section on sub, what you call Southern justice, which I don't think you mean quite literally. Um, and you are a lawyer who comes out of the American South. Is there a big difference between justice in the American South and in the American North, David, when it comes to well, race? Well, certainly when it comes to race, uh, I think there is there are some fundamental differences. And, and it, you know, it really it really boils down to how how uh, overt the, the problem has been over the years. You know, there's obviously racism and inherent racism all over the United States. It's not, a, it's not just a Southern problem, but it's probably more pronounced, if you will, in the South because of the history of slavery and, and everything that that created in the American South going forward. So, you know, we can't just ignore that. We can't wish it away. It's, it's a problem. And it's particularly a problem, Andrew, uh, in small communities in the South. So do I think that uh, there's any real difference between Charlotte, North Carolina, the attitudes in Charlotte and the attitudes in, say, um, you know, some northern city, not not dramatically. But if you start going into the, the small towns in, in North Carolina, uh, there's big differences. You know, just look at the Aubrey case in Georgia, 
where, right. where a black man is jogging through a, a white neighborhood and gets, you know, run down and, and killed uh, for jogging in that neighborhood. Uh, that generally doesn't happen in the North. So there's still those remnants of, of racism, overt racism in the South that just don't exist in the North. We are talking with David S. Rudolph, the author of a very troubling new book, American Injustice, Inside Stories from the Underbelly of the Criminal Justice System. David knows these inside stories because he's been on the front lines of this as a criminal defense lawyer for many years. Uh, we're going to take a, a short break, David, and afterwards I want to talk about more explicitly how to fix the system. I also want to touch on your own career, your own rationale in the law, uh, because there's an interesting uh, human story there. So we'll be back in about 60 seconds. Hold tight, everyone. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now, back to Keenon. We are back with David S. Rudolph, the author of an important new book, American Injustice, Inside Stories from the Underbelly of the Criminal Justice System. Um, very troubling book, I found it anyway. Uh, David, um, the, the second, uh, uh, the second uh, part of the book uh, focuses on, well, it's part five, but it's quite a long part, focuses on the fighting the abuse of power by the police. It's made up of a series of chapters. Uh, what do you think are the most important ways of fighting this abuse um, in terms of reestablishing a, of, of, a degree of justice in the American criminal justice system? Well, what I hope uh, is that by writing this book, uh, by speaking about these topics as much as possible to as wide an audience as possible, 
that I can, first of all, educate uh, people who may not be familiar with the system, uh, who may think they understand the system but really don't, about how the system actually operates. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's the first important thing for me. And at this point in my career, that's sort of real, really where my focus is. You know, rather than talking to, to 12 people at a time in a jury box, uh, I'd rather be, be talking to 1,000 people in a lecture hall or to, uh, you know, 10,000 people uh, on, a, on a podcast. So uh, I, I think that's where I am in terms of trying to make the system better. Uh, now, there's lots of, of specific things uh, that I think uh, can, can uh, make the system fairer or less prone to error. Uh, but, you know, that's going to require resources. And, and, you know, the only way we're going to get those resources is if people understand the problems and are willing to support the candidates, uh, the police chiefs, the prosecutors uh, and the sheriffs who are willing to engage in that sort of reform. David, you, um, you, you, your, your, your epilogue is called uh, The Roots of Resistance. Uh, you write about yourself. For as long as I can remember, I've had an aversion to blind obedience to authority. I tend to question authority in all its forms. You write about acting out um, at NYU uh, when your parents sent you for a series of uh, psychological tests, and you suggest that your your legal career in some ways was triggered in 1973. You were a third-year law student when um, Richard Nixon, the, the famous Saturday Night Massacre, where he attempted a kind of coup, a failed coup, uh, after Watergate. To fight the system, is there a need for a kind of resistance? You use that word. Oh, I, I think there's absolutely a need for resistance. I think whenever uh, a system starts um, uh, being corrupted, whether it's by human beings or by, or by uh, uh, policies, uh, there needs to be resistance. I mean, isn't that the, hist the history of the world, is that the only way things uh, get righted is if people of good faith resist uh, the the uh, ways in which power can be abused. Do you see? Do you see the narrative of your life as a lawyer, quite a prominent lawyer, as an act of resistance against authority? You suggest that in the book. Uh, I absolutely view that as my my calling, if you will, uh, for my life. I, I being a lawyer for me is not a profession; it is really a calling. Uh, and uh, there's nothing that I would rather have done in my life uh, than resist the abuse of power and protect the rule of law. Because at the end of the day, Andrew, if we don't protect the rule of law and resist the abuse of power, we are all going to end up just like the billions of people in China right now who are you know, subjugated to an authoritarian regime that is almost beyond imagination. Uh, as I said at the beginning, David, you divide your time between Toronto, Canada and Charlotte, North Carolina. You suggested to me at the beginning before the camera came on that you were not entirely happy with what's happening in America. Is your 
partial flight to Canada, also a, an act of resistance? Should people be leaving the country or coming back? No, well, no, I, I don't think it's an act of resistance. I have an 11-year-old daughter. Uh, and uh, as I was watching what was happening and the things that were influencing and affecting her, I became concerned, as did my, my wife, about what she was seeing and what she was being taught and the role models uh, that were being presented. Uh, and I thought that it was a real problem uh, and that she needed to understand that uh, what was going on in our country during the last five or six years was not how things were supposed to be. So, you know, to be honest, if I didn't have an 11 year old, uh, I'd be still in the United States and I'd be resisting from within the United States. I, I'm not proud to be here and uh, outside of everything that's going on. I just felt it was essential for my daughter uh, to have a different experience as she was growing up. Uh, having said that, I am very, very concerned about where we're headed in the United States. I, I have real concerns about whether the American democracy will survive 2024. Uh, and, and I've been saying that since really 2016. Uh, and, uh, you know, even after Trump was defeated, and I won't get into politics terribly much here, uh, but uh, I didn't feel like things really changed very much. You know, if, if what happened on January 6th was not viewed as uh, as something to be abhorred, uh, then there was something very wrong with our entire country, really. Uh, and uh, and so, you know, I just opted to uh, to try to give my daughter a little bit different perspective. I was curious in the uh, acknowledgments, David. Um, you, you write the book itself owes its existence to my friend Webb Hubble, the former. Associate Attorney General of the United States during Clinton's first term, who himself was the victim of an incredible abuse of power by the so-called Whitewater Special Prosecutor, Kenneth Starr. Starr and Whitewater, of course, was before Trump and the Trump circus. Uh, to what extent, then, in, in, in your reading as the, the criminal justice system when it comes to politics, um, has it somehow ingrained in the institutions of, of, of American politics? Well, you know, interestingly, Webb told me that when, when he first came to Washington from Arkansas, uh, you know, he was, he was best friends with Bill Clinton at the time, and so Bill appointed him as the Associate Attorney General. Uh, and uh, he told me that... Uh, one of the senators, uh, it may have been Dick Durbin, it may have been uh, Joe Biden at the time, I can't remember, told him that whoever comes to Washington as the president's friend is ultimately going to be uh, uh, accused of misconduct. And he sort of laughed that off, or at least shrugged it off. Uh, and then lo and behold, Whitewater happened. And when Webb refused to, to say what Kenneth Starr wanted to say, uh, Kenneth Starr threatened to indict his wife, uh, you know, for tax consequences. Uh, and, and that is itself, in my view, an incredible abuse of power. Uh, and, and 
you know, for Webb, that was the breaking point. Uh, and that's when he decided to plead guilty to protect his wife. So that's what I'm, I'm talking about when I say that Webb was himself the, the victim of an incredible abuse of power. Uh, and, and it really was my friendship with Webb that led me to his uh, particular literary agent and, and ultimately to the publication of this book. Coming to books, David, uh, one of the books that really clearly inspired you, uh, and you, you write in the book, during the summer before I entered Rutgers University as an undergraduate, we were given a reading list for incoming freshmen. I chose Escape from Freedom by Eric Fromm. Uh, this now classic book examines Hitler's rise to power in Germany, but on a broader scale, uh, on a broader level, it explores the nature of freedom and authoritarianism. It's a classic book, of course, Fromm's Escape from Freedom, a 1941 book. Um, do you think that Fromm's book about fascism remains directly relevant to the America of 2022? Absolutely. Uh, I, I think it is, it is essential not just to America, but I think it's essential to what is happening around the world today. Because, you know, the thesis of, of Fromm's book, uh, and it was written, you know, shortly after he escaped from Germany uh, during Hitler's uh, reign uh, and came to the United States. But the thesis of the book is that People are uncomfortable with freedom because it requires them to make choices. And, and so that's the basis on which they tend to uh, uh, flock to religions that have very uh, sort of uh, codes of duck that will guide them and, and make them do certain things or prevent them from do certain, doing certain things uh, so that they have something to rely on. And it's ultimately what leads them to authoritarianism. They, they, they want to be somehow told uh, uh, about how to live their lives. And, and freedom is scary because it requires choices. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, what we're seeing around the world today, Andrew, is a, is a very scary return to authoritarianism really all over the world you know it's it's not it's not just in china and it's not just in myanmar uh it, you know it's in hungary and it's in poland and it's in brazil and it's in the united states uh, and it's in china and and it's in india you know it, it's it's all over the world authoritarianism seems to be on the rise and it's lawyers job in my view to fight that you know we have to protect as lawyers the rule of law that's what we are here to do uh, and and we have to resist the abuse of power and and the attack on the rule of law and i think it's really important for all lawyers whether they're criminal defense lawyers or they're tax lawyers to recognize that obligation so what advice would you give um david to a young lawyer just you know, 50 years ago, you were starting out reading Eric from um, resisting authority uh, in the catastrophe of the the Nixon uh, regime. Um, you have uncovered the system in American justice. For people of, in their early 20s or even thinking about going to law school, what advice would you give them? What should they be doing? Well, 
you know, uh, part of the problem now is that law schools are so expensive that people leave law schools so incredibly. Should they even be going, David? Should they? Would you even advise people to go to law school these days? Well, you know, that that's an interesting question. I'm not sure how I feel about that. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, part of the problem is that when they get out, they're so indebted that they have to do things to pay off their debt. I was fortunate enough to go to law school at a time when I didn't graduate with that sort of crushing debt. And so I was free, if you will, to go and choose to be a public defender for $11,000 a year uh, instead of being a Wall Street lawyer, which I could have done, uh, and make $20,000 a year. Sounds like a pittance these days, but the difference back then was significant. Um, you know, people don't have that choice necessarily today. Uh, they, they, they have financial burdens that I, I didn't have. What I think is really important is that people find things that they are passionate about and not worry about money. You know, I, I think what I always have done is try to figure out what I care about uh, and and what's going to make me feel best about myself uh, and make decisions according to that. Uh, and to the extent that young people can do that, whatever it is, if you want to be a, you know, a, a surgeon, great. You know, you want to be a, a, a philosopher, terrific. But, um, you, you know, be be engaged with the world uh, and be engaged in a way that uh, empowers you to do things that are worthwhile for themselves, not because they lead to money. You know, we're just we're too focused on uh, money as as the the measuring stick, if you will. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, just to wax philosophical here for a minute, uh, That's I the think job. I'm, 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 my goal is to get you to wax philosophically, David. Well, it, it's not hard for me to do that, Andrew. Uh, you know, I, I think that that all of us need to understand that a life that is full of meaning uh, is a lot more uh, worthwhile than a life that is full of material things. Uh, and, and I've always tried to live my life in a way that is meaningful to me and to other people. Uh, and, and that's what I would tell younger people. You know, yeah, whatever... and, and I think for people who want to understand David S. Rudolph's life, you need to read American Injustice, Inside Stories from the Underbelly of the Criminal Justice System, very personal narrative of some terrible stories of injustice and how to fight it and how to deal with it. Congratulations, David, on the book. We talked about Eric Fromm's Flight from Injustice, uh, sorry, Escape from Freedom. You suggested that. What else should people be reading uh, in addition to From and your new book, uh, American Injustice, in January 2022? Well, uh, probably the most uh, impactful book for me recently was a book called Cast. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the yes, book. Yes, it's about Wilkerson. Yes, and, and it is, in my view, just an incredibly insightful uh, analysis of, of why our country uh, uh, suffers from the racism that it does. Uh, and 
I just find her uh, her metaphors and her and her um, comparisons. I think you know what she what she describes about Nazi Germany uh, and how they and how they modeled their laws on the laws of of the southern states in the 17 and 1800s is just amazing to me. Uh, and and it strikes a real chord. And she you know she compares our system with India and the caste system in India. Uh, and I, I think for anyone who's really interested in understanding the true roots of capitalism in the United States, and look, you know, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not opposed to capitalism as a system. I'm opposed to greed as a system. Uh, you know, when I was growing up and my dad owned a business, he treated his employees, and there were about a hundred of them, as family. Uh, and when somebody was in a, a bad situation, he helped them. Uh, and, and it was a very different time. You know, his, his salary was not, you know, 50,000 times more than whatever the, the worker's salary was. So, you know, that kind of capitalism, I think, is great. You know, where everybody is sort of in it together and, and working to, to achieve a goal. Uh, and, and they're, and they're uh, compensated for that in a meaningful way perfect. Uh, but when you start getting into greedy capitalism, uh, that's where things break down. And I think it's they're broken down in the United States. Well, certainly, David, um, we've had a number of shows about that. Um, your book doesn't directly focus on it, but certainly capitalism is a, is a piece of the narrative in American injustice. Inside stories from the underbelly of the criminal justice system, the people, of course, who are in that underbelly of the system tend to be poor, not uh, the winners in the capitalist system. So congratulations, David, on the book. And I'd love to have you back on the show, maybe talk more directly about American capitalism uh, and how to make it a more just system. Congratulations again on the book. Came out today and we'll talk again in the not too distant future. Thank you so much. Thanks very much, Andrew. I appreciate it.